So good to be with you, and uh, this is that one very special weekend a year where we keep the kids up all night, then we wake them up the next morning and send them to church and uh, try to see if they can stay awake through a whole service. So glad you guys are up for the challenge today. Um, I really appreciate what uh, Josh and Maritza and uh, others, Carly, I know, and others who were involved with the youth this weekend, you guys have done. Uh, it's a beautiful thing, and I'm, I'm very thankful for the work you're doing. So today, I want to talk to you about God's will and about discerning God's will, but not really the way we sometimes think of that. Uh, Jimmy Swaggart, y'all, y'all know who Jimmy Swaggart is? Yeah, famous tele-evangelist. When he was caught uh, on the second time, I guess, with a prostitute, and people were questioning him about this, he said, the Lord told me it's flat none of your business. (laughs) That's how some people hear from the Lord. Some people are more concerned to uh, hear God's voice and to discern God's will than they are to actually do God's will and obey God's voice. And what I want to talk to you about today is what's explicit. I'm not against that, okay? I'm very much for us uh, uh, listening to God, and I believe that's involved in the Christian life. There are things that aren't explicit, things that aren't written, and God directs us in those things. But there's something else that we need to know as we're followers of Christ, and that is that there are things given to us explicitly. There are our values, there are central, important matters that are specified for us in the text of Scripture. And I don't know about you, but uh, in, in my background, a lot of times I was sort of trained. I was given filters where I didn't always see these things. And so I, I did not uh, seek to do God's will like I could have if I had, had known those things were there, or maybe if my heart had just been more, more sensitive to these things. We're going to talk about one of those places today where the Scripture just says emphatically, Jesus says emphatically, this is God's will. Now, before we get going, I want to remind you of some of the things we covered last year because, you know, we, we started, if you haven't been here the whole time, we started the book of Matthew, and then we, we uh, broke uh, at one point and, and went to the Old Testament, and now we're back in Matthew and we talked about the structure of Matthew. I'm not going to spend a long time here. This is a reminder. If you want to talk more about it afterwards, you want me to get you some things afterwards, I'll be glad to do that. But here's how uh, Matthew structures his gospel, at least the, one, the way I'm working with it, the people I follow in structuring Matthew. You have preparation for Jesus Messiah, Son of God, in 1 through 4. And that climaxes with an announcement of Jesus' divine sonship. You have the proclamation of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, to Israel. That's chapter 4 through 16, basically what we covered last year. And you can see the, the uh, three kind of signal points. You have this formulaic statement in chapter 4. From that time, Jesus began to. Right? And then you have three summary passages. And then you get down to the third section. This is where we're focused this year uh, and what we're going to cover up until the summer of this year. The passion and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And that's in chapter 16 going up through the end in chapter 28. You have another formulaic statement from this time Jesus began to. You have three summary passages. And I wanted to mention those because we've already, we've already passed two of them. They come early on. Right at the start, Jesus predicts his suffering and death in chapter 16 at verse 21. And then we move through these things. Let me just move to the next slide here. No, hold on. I'll come back to that. Jesus announces his death and resurrection. That's the first summary statement. Then he invites his disciples into 
to uh, death. We talked about this in the class today. He invites them into a life of self-denial. Then you have the transfiguration, and he finishes that off by discussing the suffering of John the Baptist and says, that's going to happen to me too. And you have the healing of the epileptic, and that's, he comes down off the mountain, and there he asks them, this is just a, perhaps a telling question in light of the overall context, how long am I to be with you? Uh, a reflection perhaps on the shortness of the time he is going to be with them. And then you have the next summary statement where he announces this death and resurrection. And then we get down, uh, starting the next section with the payment of the temple tax. Josh covered all that beautifully last week. And uh, that's where we are going into chapter 18. Uh, and let me just show you here uh, these five great discourses in the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps arranged to correspond to the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. You have the Sermon on the Mount, the missionary discourse, the parable discourse, and then we come to where we're focusing. Uh, the, two, the two that are left for us to cover this year are the community discourse, and that's where we're starting today, and the eschatological discourse, which will be interesting when we get to chapter 23. Now, those are the five major discourses in Matthew. But what I wanted to, to emphasize to you as we're, as we're entering into this next section is that there's this kind of uh, atmosphere of death and suffering that hovers over this material because Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem now. He's going to his death. And he's inviting others to come along with him, knowing that it could be difficult, knowing that the pathway could be rocky, knowing there could be a lot of suffering that comes along with it, and you enter into this world of thought. And I just want to keep that before us, and perhaps we'll touch on it here and there as, as we go forward. That's the atmosphere. Three summary statements, three times Jesus says, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And that's put there strategically for us to follow as, as we're reading through this gospel. Now we get into chapter 18, this uh oh, that's not it. I don't have it on the PowerPoint for you today. I've decided to go back to the old school way of doing things and read straight from the Bible. So I encourage you to grab a Bible and, and follow along. You can even find one on your phone if you have to. Now here we are uh, entering into... Uh, this discussion of who's the greatest, we already covered this recently. So we're going to pass by verses 1 through 4 quickly here. Jesus tells them who the greatest is. He calls a child to himself and says, the greatest among you will be a child. It'll be like a child, right? You humble yourself like a child, and that's who the greatest is. And we're going to pick up now in verse 5, okay? Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now, this is an important statement. Jesus wants them to be like a child, right? And that's, that's his purpose at first in calling the child to himself. But he also wants to say to them, children matter. And we're going to see this throughout this block of material we're covering today. Children matter. Jesus says something that is so Important. I know of only maybe two or three places in the New Testament where Jesus says, if you do this, you do it to me. We're going to come to one of them in chapter 25 of Matthew here in a few weeks. But here he says, if you receive a child, you've received me. Do you want to receive Jesus? Welcome a child. If you remember when we talked about this 18, 1 through 4, Previously, we talked about how children were not just uh, 
they weren't just precious little children, they were, but they were low-status individuals in that society. And in a sense, they stood for all the low-status individuals, the, the, the slaves, the servants, the people who weren't considered to amount to much in that world. That, that's who they, they stand for. So it's, it's a broader category, but certainly includes literal children. And this term for receiving, it sometimes means showing hospitality, like warm hospitality, to, to someone. And, and in that society, that would be a big deal, especially because this is reversing the protocol. Normally, it'd be the slaves and the children who were expected to serve the important people. Jesus says, no, you welcome the slaves and the children into your home. You turn things around and you serve them. And when you do that, you're doing that to me. Please understand, Jesus doesn't say that about everything. Any kind of good thing you do, you do it to me. He doesn't say that. There are special moments, particularly when he talks about the weak and the hurting and the, the underprivileged, the low-status people. He says, you notice them, you do good things for them, and that's when you can know I'm present. We've spent so much time in evangelical circles telling people to receive Jesus into their hearts. It's not a bad thing. <laughs> We want to receive Jesus into our hearts. But, but maybe we ought to talk a little bit more about receiving Jesus into our homes. And what I mean by that is going out and welcoming the people that Jesus welcomed in this world. And showing hospitality to them. Don't say to me, well, I'd like to be closer to Jesus. I just don't know what to do. He's told you what you can do. Just find somebody in need and love them. Find some lowly person. Find somebody who's annoying and difficult. Find a little child who's neglected and take them in in a special way and show love to them. When you do that, you're getting closer to Jesus. When you do that, you've done it to me, Jesus says. And now Jesus is going to say something it's one of the harshest things he ever says. Oh, I keep going like I'm going to read it to you from the PowerPoint. Here. But, verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, and really I think we should translate this to stumble or to fall away. This word is, in the Greek, it's skandalizo. I don't normally say much about Greek words, but... Uh, I like that one. It means to offend or cause to stumble. I think it'd be a great, uh, great punk rock band name. Scandalizo. I offend. <laughs> it would fit. And, and this word is going to show up multiple times here in this text. It, it actually first appears in chapter 17 at the end there when he talks about giving offense to the, the tax collectors. And now it shows up again, and I think the context reveals that he's, he's using the stronger form of the, the stronger definition of the word, meaning causing somebody to stumble and fall away, causing somebody to lose their faith, doing something that really harms them in the ultimate sense. And he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, and this shows that he's broadening the category a little bit. He's not just talking about children, although they're included, but little ones who believe in him, maybe new believers, maybe weak believers, maybe people who are weak in, in the way people view them. These kind of people, if you 
cause them to stumble. Listen to what Jesus says. It would be better for that person to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Wow. Now, I just so happened to be with Olivia at Starbucks yesterday, supporting her addiction, and uh, we took a picture of, well, I'm not getting it to move now. Um, can y'all skip forward to the, the picture I had in there for me, please? This isn't working. Um, there you go. Now, those aren't millstones, as far as I know. They were right beside Starbucks, so right downtown, if you want to go check them out. Um, and I have seen millstones before, but it's in a, a quaint place in Kentucky where, the, where uh, they had them. The only time I've ever, that I ever recall seeing a millstone. But I, I just gave you a picture. I thought, when I saw those, I thought, well, that reminds me of, of millstones. These huge, heavy stones, right? And Jesus says, if you harm, if you, if you do something that causes the little ones to stumble, it'd be better to take one of those and have it ta- attached to your neck and you'd be taken out into the middle of the sea, not the shallow part, into the depths of the sea and be drowned there. I mean, surely there are easier ways to drown. <laughs> I think if Olivia jumped in the pool with her shoes on, she'd have a hard time. Some people have a hard time anyway. But you, ta- you attach that to your neck, you're not getting back up, are you? And the idea that Jesus is, is pointing to is, is that it's not just that you're going to drown, it's that you're going to be forgotten from the earth, which to ancient people would have meant more maybe than it does to us today. Your whole existence wiped out. He said, if you are going to hurt these little ones, it would be better for that to happen to you. Do you know Jesus never said that about adultery? He never said it about stealing. He never said it about lying. He's against all those things. But he didn't use these words to talk about those things. He said, if you are hurting little children or the weak and vulnerable in the world, you're in big trouble. Now I want to tell you something, I'm glad that verse is in the Bible. Sometimes we read the strong statements in the Bible and we say, well, man, I kind of wish that wasn't in there. But man, when I think about all the bad things that are done to the vulnerable ones in the world. When I think about little children who are abused in their homes, physically, sexually, verbally, when I think about how these kids get ruined for lives, they're having challenges placed on them when they should be protected by the ones who should be protecting them. And they're having these things placed upon them that are going to haunt them for the rest of their lives. And it seems like there's no accountability. They can't protect themselves. And what I want you to know is you want to see the fire of the wrath of God blaze in the eyes of Jesus. You harm those little children. God sees that. And thank God that somebody in the universe is taking this seriously and will not overlook it. 
It's the love of God that shows up in Jesus here. It should get our attention. We sing the little song, it's a little cute song, Jesus Loves the Little Children. <laughs> oh, that's sweet, isn't it? <laughs> Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. It's true. <laughs> that's what it is. It is as true as anything we read in the Bible. And let me tell you something, Jesus wants to defend the little children. And the little wounded ones, the weak ones in our society and in our world. And if you haven't been taking seriously God's care for children and for little weak ones, it's time to start today. And if you have been one, let me just speak very frankly with you. If you are one who's put into a position of influence and authority over little ones and you have been mistreating them, you need to wake up. If you're calling your kids names, if you're yelling at them on a regular basis, belittling them, and saddling them with emotional wounds they're going to carry for the rest of their lives, if you're being too physically harsh with them, you need to stop and realize who their protector is. And realize that the only reason you have the gift of being in that place of authority over them is because God has put you there to shepherd and guide them and to lead them to a different place. And pray for the heart of Jesus. Repent of your sins. <laughs> Repent of your sins and, and turn to Jesus in your home and in other areas where you have authority and influence over the weak ones. Look at chapter, look at verse 7. Woe to the world for the scandals, the scandalizo, the, the temptations to sin. But it, that's really just not the best translation. It's that, woe to the world for these stumbling blocks. They're necessary, Jesus says. It's necessary that they come. But woe to the one by whom they come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the Gehenna of fire. Now this passage here, he says... Yes, temptations are going to come. Stumbling blocks are going to be in this, this world. That's going to happen. But woe to the person who says, I'll be the one to bring them. And keeping this in context, he's talking about the harm done to the little ones. And he says, woe to you. Wake up. Be aware of what you're heading for if you're involved in this. And the passage itself, it recalls the, the, this specific language, if you remember last year when we talked about lust in Matthew chapter 5, same language Jesus uses there. If, you're, if your hand offends, you cut it off. If your eye offends, you pull it out, throw it away. And I can't help but wonder, I know that uh, some have speculated about passages like this in the New Testament, that Jesus is talking here, uh, or at least he's including here in thinking about child abuse. The echo of Matthew 5 uh, at least makes you wonder if that was on Jesus' mind. If you're doing that, Jesus said, you need to take drastic measures to stop it. 
But even beyond that, here we're dealing with just sin and temptation and being the one who brings those kind of things. If you are, if you are dealing with sin in a way, first of all, if you're dealing with sin in a way that is causing others to sin in any way, you need to do something about it. That's what this passage says. It's not a literal statement about cutting your hand off, but it is a, a, an intentional statement, an exaggerated statement about take action. It's amazing sometimes how people will say, yeah, I'd really like for things to be different. I want, I want to change. I want, to, I want things to be better. And then they do absolutely nothing differently. <laughs> Jesus says take drastic action. And don't you know that sometimes when you have a habit, when you have a, a particular way of being in the world, it feels like cutting off a hand to stop it. You think, how do I do that? That seems like such a challenge. Jesus says, do it. If sin is overcoming you, take drastic action and get rid of it. Change your ways and do it quickly. If you've been in your home, I'm just staying with the idea of, of kids here. We could, we could broaden it and talk about other things. But if you've been in your home and you've not been loving your family, if you've been cussing your spouse and your kids, if you've been belittling them and calling them names, and you say, well, I sure would like to be better. What Jesus says to you is do something. Take ownership for yourself. Take action, even if it seems crazy. <laughs> do something drastic and change that because it matters. These are people's lives that you're playing with. And we'll see why it matters here as we enter into this, this last part of the passage, verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. And the, the really, we could translate the first verse, beware. This is an attention-getting kind of statement. Beware. Stop and notice that you don't despise. And we, think, we hear despise, we think more hate. I don't really think that's the main thing Jesus is saying here. He's talking about looking down on, treating them as if they don't have value, thinking of them as if they're not very important. Beware that you don't look at little children or little ones in the faith, weak ones. Beware you don't look at people like that and think they're not of great value. I'll give my attention to the important people. For I tell, I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now here we get to the guardian angel passage that everybody wonders about and wants to talk about. And, and the truth is, we're not given much information about this. There's just a statement here. Their angels always behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. And whether it's a group of angels that's kind of overseeing the little ones, or whether it's one-to-one -one, like a guardian angel kind of thing, that, that's really, Jesus just doesn't specify. I'm sorry, I know that we'd all like to know about what, what exactly is happening with the angels and the kids and all that, but this is just all we've got, and this is what he says. But the point is, is clear, and we can get that just by, just by paying attention to the details. You notice he said, their angels are always looking at the face of my Father. When you read in the Old Testament and Jewish literature, what you find angels doing, for example, in, in Isaiah chapter 6, do you know what they're doing? They're flying around the throne of God. They're covering their faces. Do you remember that, Isaiah chapter 6? The angels are covering their faces with their wings. Why? Because you're not supposed to look on God. 
There are these things about, about seeing God and living. That's hard to do because of his great power and glory. So the angels in his presence, they fly around and they cover, they cover their faces. This passage says these angels, they look straight at God. You know what you've done here? You've gone up to the highest level of heaven. These are the most important angels, the, the strongest, the most significant angels. They're there looking at God's face. Why does that matter? Because he's looking at the people who are the most insignificant here on earth. The lowest status people. The children, the slaves, the homeless, those in dire poverty. He's looking at them and saying, you see how we treat them as so insignificant? They're connected to the highest angels of heaven. You know, if we had some really important, let's say some important kid or grandkid, in here, let's say Jerry Joneses, since we're all in Dallas here, everybody loves the Cowboys. Jerry Joneses' kids were here with us. Would you be tempted to say, I want to treat them a little special? Say, I want to, I want to be friends with them. Maybe I can buddy up a little bit with them. Now, I really, I hope in Christ we're learning not to care about those kind of things. But I, I think I can touch on a, a human desire that at least some of you will recognize. Like, yeah, I kind of like to, I kind of like to buddy up with them a little bit. Why? Because they have connections, right? <laughs> That's the reason we're tempted that, tempted to do that. But you see, in Christ, we're dealing with invisible realities. We're dealing with things that that other people don't see, that no one actually sees, but we understand through revelation. And what Jesus is telling us is the people you see as the nobodies in the world, they are connected to the highest heaven. That's where their connections go. So be careful that you don't despise them. Their angels are actually in the presence of God. Their angels are the ones who unveil their face before God. And they see him. Verses 12 to 13. What do you think? Here Jesus changes the subject a little bit. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. Now this seems a little bit... Uh, crazy when you think about it, especially if you imagine a shepherd who doesn't have other shepherds watching over the sheep. And he says, I'm going to leave the 99 I have and go look for this one that's out there. In CR, you see our people, we might call this a codependent shepherd. <laughs> so attached to that one, he can't care for the other people, right? But the point that Jesus is making here is not to say that God's risking those sheep. We can, we can assume they're cared for in one way or the other. The point is that this shepherd cares so much about that one sheep. He doesn't say, well, I've got 99. You know, 99% is a pretty good batting average there. Right? It's, a, it's a pretty good uh, score. If I've got 99 out of 100, one one. 
willful sheep that wanted to have its own way, went out on its own. That's his loss, right? That's not what the shepherd says. The shepherd says, I've got 99, but 99's not enough for me. Because there's still one. You see, if you're thinking of sheep as a commodity, if you're thinking of sheep as just a, a financial thing, you may th- say, yeah, it's not worth the risk. I mean, I could get hurt going to find this sheep out in the desert. The other sheep could get hurt back here. But if you're thinking of a sheep that you care about, what if that sheep has a name? What if every hair on its head is numbered? Like Jesus says about us. What if you're thinking of that sheep as a sheep you have, in a way, a relationship with? That's what Jesus is saying here about, about his heart, about God's heart. 99 is not enough for him. Because he's not in a business deal. He's not, he's not running a business deal with the church or with his people. He's not trying to say, oh, I got this percentage, I'm doing great. He's saying, I love every single one of them. I have four kids now. You know what? Three will never be enough for me. Three will never be enough because I have four and I love them all. That's the way God thinks about his people. 99 is not enough for him when there are 100. 99,000 is not enough for him when there are 99,001. And we're given a great glimpse into the heart of God here. God cares about all of his people, even the weak and the little and the lost who are out on the the extreme edges that other people don't see or notice. God notices them. And look at the last verse in in this passage here. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. That's God's will, not one. I want to read to you what N.T. Wright says about this passage So who are these little ones? They include weak, vulnerable children, of course, as we were thinking in the previous passage. But they also include those who are weak and vulnerable at other times of life, too. The cripples. And please just think about these categories. The chronically sick. The elderly and infirm. Refugees. Women in many cultures. Any who find themselves on the human scrap heap that our world throws people on, Onto when it can't think what else to do with them. They include the dirty beggar you avoided in the street yesterday. They include the shop girl who you were tempted to be rude to. They include the old woman pushing a supermarket trolley down the street with, so it seemed, all her life's belongings piled high on it. They include the teenage boy who drifted into drugs because there weren't any jobs and who is now dying of heroin. We don't want to know about these little people. God wants to let them into his closest, most intimate presence. We regard them as undesirable. God desires not only their welfare, but their company. They are a standing reminder of God's kingdom. And we turn away from them as a society because as a society, we have turned away from God. What I want to say to you, my brothers and sisters here, is that the will of God is clear. 
This is not debatable when it comes to God's will. And I want to say to us as the people of God, we need to turn back to God. And notice the little ones again. And refuse to despise those that the world tells us it's easy to despise. Because they are precious to God. It's not his will that any of them perish. And so we notice them. We seek them out. We open our homes to them. Frank Laubach, the great missionary to the Islamic people, said one time that every person we meet is God's opportunity. Every person we ever meet is God's opportunity. If only, if only we were not so shut off to God. That's what he says. And it's because, you see, I'm not just wanting to give you a moral exhortation here. I'm wanting to take you into the heart of God. That's, that's who Christians are meant to be, not people who just try harder and do better. People who know God's heart and have connected themselves, have, have an umbilical link with God, God's heart feeding us. Because of that, because we know what God's will is, we notice these people. We're not shut off to God. And we take these people in and we love these people. That's the calling of the Christian life. This is Christian ministry, passionate care for little ones. If you're a little one in here today, whether that's as a child or somebody you feel like you've been pushed to the exterior because of your social standing, because of your physical standing, because of your socioeconomic standing, because of certain personality traits, whatever it is that has made you feel like you're one of the outsiders, I want to say to you with the authority of the Lord Jesus right now, you are precious to God. And you may have felt invisible in the world. I want you to know you've never, never been invisible to God. He and his angels see and care about you. Laubach says in another place that if we understood this world to be God's attempt to have love incarnate itself, this is not a direct quote, but it's, it's a paraphrase. He said, if we understood that, then what we, say, what we see is important duties that keep us from caring for the little people. Might not be duties at all, but sins. What kind of things do we have in place in our lives that are keeping us from noticing and loving the little ones that God loves? And he says directly to us, it is not my will that any of them perish. This is the reason the church is what it is. It's the reason the church should be collecting all kinds of people. This is not a club for people of a certain status certain race, a certain ethnicity, a certain socioeconomic bracket. This is a place where God's love for everybody and especially for those who might be excluded and left out is found and manifest powerfully so. And may it be more and more so among us. This is what Jesus came and showed us. This is what he lived. This is what he died. This is his resurrection life among us. Will you receive it? Will you embrace it? Will you live into it?
May we all do so by God's grace. Amen.